under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelical X, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Okay, well, hi, everybody. This is Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you again to another episode of Psychedelical X, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics, and this is another episode of me cleaning out my inbox. As I've done in previous instances of this iteration of my podcast, I am a subscriber to a variety of different newsletters and different outlets that pump out information on the topic of psychedelics, and every so often I go through my inbox and take a read and take out the juicy bits and try to share them with you, and in so doing, also sparing you from the junk mail. So let's take a look at what's happened in the world of psychedelics over the summer, and by way of reference today, at least according to my computer here, is August 17th, so we are smack in the middle of August, which I would regard as end of summer for all intents and purposes. So this is the summer edition of what's going on in my inbox in the world of psychedelics. Let's take a look. All right, so first off, I want to give some acknowledgement to some of the subscribers to my show. Uh, you may know I host this podcast off of YouTube, but it's syndicated and pumped out on a number of different platforms and channels, but its home base is, for all intents and purposes, YouTube. So these are comments and, and other things that came in off of that channel. So first off, I want to say thank you to Diane Dalnas, who wrote in in regard to my God and Mushrooms episode, and she said, thank you very much. Very informative. Well, Diana, you're welcome, and thanks for tuning in. Let's see. Chiefess Dr. Al-Anana E-Star. Wow, that's a long name. Well, Chiefess, uh, Chiefess, excuse me. Subscribe to the channel. Welcome, Chiefess. Uh, Ragnar Lothbrok, welcome as well. Daniel Condi, welcome. Freak1540, what the hell? Is that an L or a 1? I don't know. Freak1554 could be an exclamation point, could be an L, could be 1. I don't know. Whatever it is, Freak, uh, welcome. Let's see. Deborah McElhannon. McElhannon. McElhannon? I'm horrible at pronunciation of names, as you can tell. But Deborah, welcome. Uh, Travis Deasing, Welcome. Mark Miner wrote in to ask about my DEA denial of religious exemption episode regarding the SoulQuest denial. And Mark is asking if I could post the whole letter because he thinks it would be fascinating to see. Uh, short answer is, Mark, yes, I can. And it's actually on my list of to-dos. And point the fact, if you go to my website, psychedelicalex.com, same name as the show, same name as the book, try to make it easy. Uh, I have a page there that's intended to be an online psychedelic law library. In candor, I'm many months behind in adding to it, and the DEA letter, along with a host of other stuff I've got, are in the wings waiting for me to get to it to actually finally post on the website. It is on my to-do list. It's just one of those things I get to it when I can. But I'm going to try in earnest to return to work on that library over the next few weeks. So check my website, oh, probably about 
another 30 days. It hopefully will be up by then. Not the website. The website's already up, the, the, the DEA letter, uh, a bun- along with a bunch of other stuff. So stay patient, and yes, it's coming. But in the meantime, if, if you don't have patience, just do a Google search. I'm sure you'll find the letter online, uh, much in the same way I did. All right. Other subscribers, Forrest Greenwood, welcome. Jao Nunez, welcome. Mose Browning, welcome. OneDeadDrift.com, welcome. Swerty, welcome. Great name, Swerty. Chris Cavanaugh, welcome. Nikki Rodriguez, welcome. Paso Stevo, welcome. Kalim Sikander, welcome. Uh, Ani Mir commented on my interview with Joshua Capel, appreciating the fact that I had sort of coined the phrase regarding efforts to decriminalize as being permission, not promotion. Well, yeah, that's what it's about, and that just seems about the most succinct way to say it. So, yeah, it's all about permission, not promotion. So thanks for acknowledging that, Ani. Uh, Denis Krupadorov, welcome as well. Uh, Checkers9, there's like 11 S's at the end of Checkers' name, but Checkers... Nine uh, also subscribed, so welcome, checkers. Uh, in the moment, subscribed. Well, that's an apropos name. Nicely done in the moment. And then Raymond Jackson has also subscribed. So welcome, Raymond. And there's a bunch of others here, but uh, we can't read them all. But I love you, and I appreciate you. And please do tell people about this podcast. <laughs> All right. Monday of this week, I received a newsletter from a group online called The Microdose, and they did a five-question interview with uh, fellow attorney Matthew Zorn. And if you haven't heard of Matthew, he's got a fantastic career, and he's probably the lead guy out there right now taking the DEA to task on a number of fronts. Uh, Matt's been spearheading some of the biggest and best litigation going on in the country right now, and I'm really glad to see Matt out there. And if you'd like to learn more about him, you can, of course, Google online or go to the microdose, and you can see this interview with Matt. Now, speaking of Matt, uh, he and Graham Pekinick had an incredible victory this past month against the DEA, which was at task of trying to add additional tryptamines to Schedule 1. Matt and a bunch of other folks, I don't want to exclude anybody, but I don't have the complete list, but understand it wasn't done by one person alone. It sometimes takes a village. But Matt uh, spearheaded this case and was able to get the DEA to back down and prevented it from adding more tryptamines to Schedule 1. There are a bunch of articles going around the internet right now about it. Again, this happened, oh golly, like in the last two or three weeks. So this is relatively fresh news, but it's a wonderful sign that, uh, A, there are people out there on the front line preventing these things from happening, but also, B, uh, the DEA, without having to be court-ordered, actually stood down, which is a little bit miraculous unto itself. So anyway, watch for more news on this developing, I suspect. But in the meantime, if you want to know more, just Google Matt and DEA and you will see all about it. Uh, Also, my friends with the Interdisciplinary Conference on Psychedelic Research wanted me to remind you all that there is a conference going on uh, September 22nd and excuse me, 22nd through 24th, uh, taking place in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And uh, on the list of speakers includes, and I'll just read the list here to make it easy, Paul Stamets, Katrin Preller, David Nutt, Amanda Fielding, Roland Griffiths, 
Kim Kuypers, Rick Doblin, Janice Phelps, David Nichols, Monica Williams, Peter Gosser, uh, Friedrich Holza, Mendel Kalin, Erica Dyke, Matthias Lichty, Lichty, and Bernardo Castrup, to name a few others. Uh, anyway, these are today's psychedelic luminaries, and they are going to be speaking in Amsterdam September 22nd through the 24th. Uh, if you happen to be in the greater Amsterdam area, which I am not, unfortunately, uh, you should definitely attend. <laughs> Let's see, and from the Psychedelics Law blog, they are reporting that California's effort to decriminalize psychedelics this year, 2022, has failed. It's not going to happen this year, uh, and I'm referencing the 2021 uh, decriminalization effort put forth known as SB 519 by California State Senator Scott Weiner. Um, I have, well, to be quite candid, not done a review of that uh, state initiative yet because, well, candidly, I didn't think it was going to pass this year and I didn't want to spend a lot of time diving in to something that is still kind of contentious and being debated. But um, encouraging news, it's not dead. It's just still kind of under debate and still developing. So stay tuned. More to come on that as well. Now, dating back to May of this year, in what might be taken as a positive portent to the federal government's evolving position on psychedelics in general, there was a letter published, or not published, but sent, but since published publicly, uh, back in May of this year, uh, written by the Assistant Secretary for Mental Health and Substance Abuse at SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And this was a letter sent to the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, to Representative Madeline Dean specifically, but on, on the following premise, I'll just read it because it's a short letter. Uh, Dear Representative Dean, thank you for your letter to Secretary Becerra in which you recommend the establishment of an interagency federal task force to develop and lead a public-private partnership that can address the myriad of complex issues associated with the anticipated approval by the Food and Drug Administration of three, oh God, it's a long chemical compound, MDMA, associated with the anticipated approval by the FDA of MDMA for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder and psilocybin for the treatment of depression within approximately 24 months. I'm going to stop reading the letter there. So this is SAMHSA writing to the House of Representatives saying, hey, we anticipate that in two years or less, MDMA and psilocybin will receive approval. Now, we've known this is coming, but the fact that the federal government is actively acknowledging this now and trying to take steps in anticipation of it, fantastic news. Great stuff. Let me keep reading. Uh, where did I leave off? The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration was asked to respond on the Secretary's behalf. SAMHSA agrees that too many Americans are suffering from mental health and substance use issues, which have been exacerbated by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, and that we must explore the potential of psychedelic-assisted therapies to address this crisis. SAMHSA also agrees that use of psychedelic medicines will require a broad-spectrum interdisciplinary stakeholder approach 
to effectively tackle the complexity of issues that stakeholders anticipate will arise with their introduction. Amen to that. Couldn't agree more. Let's keep reading. SAMHSA, in collaboration with the Assistant Secretary for Health, is exploring the prospect of establishing a federal task force to monitor and address the numerous complex issues associated with emerging substances. The task force may establish and oversee the functions of a public-private partnership that can broadly focus on addressing numerous complex issues associated with psychedelic and intactogenic medicines, but whose risks to public health may require harm reduction, risk mitigation, and safety monitoring. Collaboration across federal agencies with outside stakeholders will be the most effective way to ensure we are thoughtfully coordinating work on emerging substances such as MDMA and psilocybin. Thank you for taking the time to elevate this important issue. And it's signed by Miriam Delphin Rittman, Assistant Secretary for Mental Health and Substance Use. Well, Assistant Secretary Delphin Rittman, spot on, couldn't agree more. And I hope this does get the House of Representatives' attention because, yes, they could help and they could actually improve this and make it even better. So um, anyway, this is the federal government saying they anticipate this stuff hitting our, our uh, pharmacies and our, our physicians' offices within two years, possibly. That's not that far off. All right. In late June, the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board had a, another meeting and discussed a lot of issues coming out of the Measure 109 efforts to get the program standing up. You may recall from previous installments of this podcast, I've had, amongst other people, John Dennis on talking about how Oregon's a task of trying to get its new psilocybin program going, and it's got roughly a year to go before things switch on. And amongst things that were discussed at the meeting, although maybe not resolved, uh, included risk assessment framework and safety planning. They were also investigating whether and how to set limits on psilocybin and psilocybin dosage inside psilocybin-based products. Uh, amongst things they're also trying to establish are what the metric standard will be, in, including how doses are metered or measured. Uh, included, they also discussed issues of product handling, including whether it can or should be allowed to be mixed in with other substances or substrates. And they also discussed integration sessions, the hows and the wheres and, and the whats of it. These uh, different topics are all being further fleshed out within subcommittees and aiming towards a final set of rules that will express the ultimate intentions behind the program. So it's still under process. Stay tuned. Way more news to come. Uh, you may also know from a recent episode of my podcast that in Colorado, the Natural Medicine Health Act has garnered enough signatures to make it onto the ballot. And this is an effort to decriminalize a variety of psychedelic substances throughout the state of Colorado, rather than what you're currently perhaps familiar with, which is just uh, local decriminalization by initiative at a municipal level, such as in Denver. Uh, what this act would propose to do is to create a statewide standard and basically break this concept out from the confines of a city and into the broader uh, jurisdiction in a whole.
jurisdiction in whole. Not in a whole. That would be weird. All right, and this next bit of news comes from my friends at Psychedelic Alpha, formerly Psilocybin Alpha. They rebranded a few months ago to the broader world of psychedelics. Uh, And they are reporting of a lawsuit that was just filed on August 5th by Terran Biosciences against Compass Pathways parent company. Let me pull it up on my screen here so I get the name right. Compass Pathfinder Limited. Uh, which is noted on the face of the complaint as an England and Wales company, so they're, I presume, based out of those countries. And uh, the lawsuit basically alleges, in a very simple sense, that the Compass Pathways folks are alleged to have stolen trade secrets from a University of Maryland researcher and then filed those patents claiming ownership over them. I have no idea (laughs) if there's any uh, validity to the allegation, but basically in a nutshell, that's it. Anyway, I have I actually have a copy of the complaint right here, which maybe I'll put it up on the screen, but let's take a quick tour of it and see what's here. So it is titled Terran Biosciences versus Compass Pathfinder Limited. It is in the United States Federal District Court for the District of Maryland. It was filed August 5th, and I, oh yeah, I do have a case number. Uh, in case you want to go look this up, it's 1 uh, colon 22 CV 01956. And being the initiatory document, it doesn't have the rest of that file number that would clue you in on which judge received the assignment. Um, but. Yeah, definitely was filed, definitely in the federal district court. And let's see, there's a bunch of allegations here identifying who the parties are, establishing jurisdiction and venue, and then discusses uh, apparently this professor from the University of Maryland School of Medicine is claiming to be an expert in the potential use of psilocybin as an antidepressant and medication for other mental health disorders and is asserting that he had assisted in the formation and actually claims to have flat out invented certain iterations of these substances. The complaint goes on to assert that persons affiliated with Compass had reached out to this professor seeking to discuss the research. From there, the complaint discusses the allegation that persons affiliated with Compass apparently are accused of having misappropriated this information, which is being claimed as trade secret. And there's count one, specifically titled Misappropriation of Trade Secrets under the uh, Trade Secrets Act. Count two, misappropriation of trade secrets under the Maryland State Iteration of a Trade Secrets Act. Let's pause here for a moment in case you're not aware of this. There can be, uh, under federal law and also separately under state law, regulation or statutes that govern the same topics and you can be subject to one jurisdiction or the other or, in this instance, both. And in this case... Plaintiffs decided to take advantage of being able to present claims based both on federal law and on state law, which, frankly, is a good move if you're a plaintiff. Um, And then count three is breach of contract, and then they are requesting relief. 
and uh, the item at the end of a complaint where one requests relief is called a prayer for relief. And according to this prayer, uh, the plaintiffs are wanting permanent injunctive relief against the defendants and anyone acting in participation or concert with them. They are wanting to enjoin the defendants from obtaining, retaining, using, transmitting, disseminating, or disclosing any of their psilocybin trade secrets. Uh, they are wanting the injunction to order the defendants to identify and turn over any property in their possession, custody, or control containing or reflecting the psilocybin trade secrets, including hard copy documents or any form of electronic storage media, ordering defendants to identify any other persons, entities, or locations within, the prem, uh, within their possession, custody, or control to which defendants had transmitted, disseminated, disclosed, or stored it. Well, basically, in a nutshell, if there's anything associated with the psilocybin trade secrets, plaintiffs want it back. Uh, in addition, plaintiffs are wanting compensatory damages in an amount to be determined at trial, exemplary damages in an amount to be determined at trial, interest at the maximum legal rate, uh, reasonable attorney's fees, uh, costs of suit, and any other relief the court deems just and proper. And the plaintiffs have specifically demanded a jury, uh, which is available in civil cases like this. So yes, you could present this to a jury. Um, Anyway, brand spanking new lawsuit, you know now as much about it as I know. I have zero idea what the actual story here is. I only know what's in the complaint and could be accurate, could be a little inaccurate, could be completely inaccurate. I really don't know. Um, but this is one to watch because these are the kinds of things that go on in the world of psychedelic development and, well, frankly, drug development. Uh, people try to get patents and try to get chokeholds in the marketplace by having those patents because those patents give them a right of primacy. If you own a patent that's in the path of a developing technology, anybody who wants to get to and through you and your patent, well, they have to deal with you and possibly pay you or buy your patent out or pay you a royalty. And right now, the world of psychedelics, pharmaceutically-wise is wide open virgin territory for the most part. You've got to remember with the Controlled Substances Act and the sort of federal policy that really made research um, impossible these many decades, there really just hasn't been a lot of it. Recent history is changing that, and sure, yes, absolutely, lots of research is going on right now and lots more to follow. But what are these people researching for? They're researching for things that they can patent so that they can claim exclusivity so that they can go and financially exploit those things and make a ton of money doing it. So a lot of what you see in this world of psychedelics is more about money than about psychedelics. I'm sorry to burst your bubble in case you thought it was all full of altruism and love. It's not. It's full of money. And that's what people are after. So... Um, keep your eyes on this lawsuit. This could be a really big deal and could, depending on how it goes, uh, ring the bell for a lot of other hopeful and wannabe investors who, you know, aren't really behaving in a way that is commensurate with what the law expects of them, which is not me commenting on the case here because, again, I really have no idea. But I'll keep my eyes open, and if there's more to report about this, I'll, of course, share it with you. <laughs> The next article I came across is from the newsletter I get from the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws, Normal. 
And this particular article is talking about a recent study conducted that shows medical cannabis use is not associated with elevated risk of hospitalizations due to mental health disorders. And it's talking about, let's see here, a study done out of Canada uh, that assessed marijuana-related hospitalizations among a cohort of over 23,000 authorized medical cannabis patients. That's a lot of patients in a study. So that's, that's a pretty decent bellwether. Now, the reason I'm commenting on this, and I think the reason Normal put this uh, article out was, A, the study was done, so it's worthy reporting. But also, I have seen news stories lately that have been unsupported. It's just, you know, reporters talking and not citing things, uh, suggesting that hospitalizations for cannabis use are up and that cannabis use disorder is up. I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen any corroborating statistics to it. But, again, Normal was decent enough to get this study out of Canada and share news of it. So um, it supports my belief that the naysayers are still out there. And I'm not saying that there couldn't possibly be some validity to hospitalizations or issues having increased. It logically follows there should be. If overall in a population more people are consuming, you'll see both good and bad increase in quantity. But uh, the chicken little sky is falling syndrome, yeah, that's wholly unsupported. And I've seen no evidence of it. But anyway, kudos to Normal for sharing that. Now, also from normal is, well, possibly a related story that the federal government reports that there has been a significant year-over-year decline in marijuana seizures at the U.S. border. Uh, And the report goes on to say that according to a report provided by BorderReport.com, the Department of Homeland Security agencies in fiscal year 2021 seized 160 tons of marijuana an average of 874 pounds of marijuana per day. And within three months left in the current fiscal year, agencies only 56 tons, an average of 408 pounds a day. That's a precipitous drop. And the article theorizes, and I kind of share the theory, that this may be due to nothing more than domestic supply of cannabis has dramatically increased, and the need for exported cannabis from Mexico or any other nation has diminished because we're making our own. That logically follows. And on this thought, if you were ever curious to research or get to know about what the U.S. Customs and Border Protection does in the way of drug seizures, I mean statistics, that is, you know, volume, etc., they actually publish that. And if you go to their website, and I'll tell you the website, it's cbp.gov. And then uh, you can go slash newsroom, slash stats, slash drug, dash seizures, dash statistics, or just go to U.S. Customs, Border and Protection, and search for drug seizure statistics. They have whole pages of it here, um, including handy little charts, and it breaks it down by the type of drug. So, for example, uh, marijuana is the, well, frankly, the biggest of all of the imported and seized drugs over the border. Uh, looks, I'm going off the color charts here. It looks like second in line is, uh, cot. Uh, and then third is methamphetamine and, well, let's see. Um, 
Ecstasy and LSD are so small, they barely register on the chart. They're like almost literally invisible. Um, interesting. Heroin also almost invisible on the chart, but fentanyl definitely racks up. Cocaine definitely racks up. Um, and you can you can do bunches of different searches and look at these from different perspectives. Um, and also over different years, you can look at uh, the components. You can, well, let's, let's play with this, land filter. Oh, you can even search by field office if you want to know which field offices are doing better than others or encountering things more than others. So it's a fascinating place to really get your brain around what the federal government is actually encountering and doing in the way of drug seizures. The one thing that this particular website perhaps won't tell you is what motivates the seizures. And, and for example, if um, methamphetamine seizures are, are dramatically more than, say, heroin seizures, this may not tell you why. It could be that there just is more methamphetamine than heroin coming over the border. That's a possibility. It could mean the DEA is just focusing more on methamphetamine. Uh, it could mean that the uh, DEA is just not as good at tracking uh, heroin versus methamphetamine. It could mean the traffickers are just better at smuggling in heroin, and that contrary to how the DEA is doing at the border or how U.S. Customs is doing at the border, excuse me, uh, it could be that the uh, traffickers are taking other avenues to get other substances across the border without getting caught by customs. I, I really don't know. But if you're a statistics nerd and want to look at this, it's a decent bit of data on their website. So again, go to U.S. Customs and Border Protection at www.cbp.gov, uh, and then you can look for drug seizure statistics. They've got a whole page and section for that, and you can explore it. All right, and one more here from Normal because I, I have a little bit of personal experience with this. And this is from their, their July newsletter, uh, and they're talking about a, a study that was done by a team of orthopa uh, orthopedic specialists, um, and the study revealed that patients with a history of cannabis use were less likely to have medical complications following spinal fusion surgery. Now, I've never had spinal fusion surgery, and I hope to God I never do. But you may have heard me talk about on the show, I have had several surgeries over the years. I've had both knees operated on, an ankle, a shoulder, and a few other things. And I, in lieu of using and getting from the doctor the typical regimen of uh, narcotics that they give you, which, by the way, in every single instance I've had a surgery and I've told the surgeon, don't even give me the prescription for narcotics. I don't want them. I'm not going to take them. I'm not even going to go to the pharmacy and fill the script. They still shove the prescription in my hand and make me walk out with it every single time. So frustrating. Uh, but I don't use that stuff, never have. And in each of the instances when I had a surgery, yeah, I opted for cannabis as my, my pain mitigator, and it worked just fine. Um, I don't know if it was the pain relief, the anti-inflammatory, something else, or a combination thereof, but it was more than ample to take care of me multiple times post-surgery. So I'm not remotely shocked that the study finds that spine fusion patients who were cannabis users did better. Who knew? I knew. I knew. Sorry, I just have to do one more from the normal newsletter because they published in July about another study that determined 
cannabis use is not predictive of a lack of motivation. You've heard the old adage that pot smokers are lazy and demotivated. Well, if I can use myself as a living example of the proof otherwise, um, thank you, Normal, for finding a study that backs up what I already know. Cannabis is definitely not demotivating, and point to fact, I've built my career off of it. So thank you, cannabis. You're very motivating. All right, the next bit of news comes from my friends at Zendo Project, who remind that they're going to be at the Burning Man again this year, 2022. It's live and in person once more. Uh, Tickets did go on sale August 3rd. Registration was already required by July 27th through 29th. And indeed, Burning Man is happening. Zendo Project's going to be there, and if you're not familiar with Zendo Project, they are sort of MAPS's harm reduction wing, and they offer a variety of services aimed at exactly that harm reduction. So uh, there'll be a Zendo tent at Burning Man, as there has always been. So if you're in Burning Man and, and need a little extra help or love or you're in distress, look for the Zendo tent. All right, from additional uh, good news from MAPS, they are reporting in their July newsletter that after months of negotiation with the Food and Drug Administration, MAPS has been permitted to initiate their sponsored Phase 2 open-label feasibility and safety of MDMA-assisted group therapy for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans study. Oh, my God, that's a mouthful. You guys need an acronym for that one. Uh, oh my gosh, they do. It's MPG-1. <laughs> okay, anyway, big mouthful. Uh, MDMA study, veterans, post-traumatic stress disorder. Phase 2 approved. FDA said do it. It's moving forward, which is great because that's one step away from Phase 3. And it is full-throated, supported by the VA, no less. MAPS reports that this study is getting the support and approval by the VA Portland Healthcare System Institutional Review Board, and this comes after the FDA had put a temporary hold because of safety concerns. But those have since been, I guess, addressed. The FDA is satisfied, and the study is moving forward. By the way, if you uh, uh, have Netflix and you're inclined to watch it, I will also let you know that over the summer, Netflix had released a series on how to change your mind featuring Michael Pollan. You may be familiar with his book of the same title, How to Change Your Mind. Well, Michael's back doing a short mini series of a bunch of small episodes talking about some of the items and issues in his book and giving you a little more depth than what the book perhaps offered. I've seen a couple of the episodes. They're pretty well done. Um, candidly, they're a little intro and basic, but I'm not faulting them. They, they are exactly what they need to be, given the audience they're aimed at. So if you're already deeply steeped in this, you might find the episodes a little basic, but they're well-produced and, and, and well-written. The filming's decent, the direction's decent, and the content is decent. And if you've got friends who maybe have no familiarity whatsoever with psychedelics and you kind of want to get them introduced to it, Introduce them to this show on Netflix. Again, it's Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. I think there's like six or seven episodes. It's short, very digestible, and and worth the watch. (laughs) 
Oh, uh, also, this comes from uh, Lucid News, and they're telling about a Canadian group that's also attempting to get a right to try approval for psilocybin up in Canada. You may know from previous installments of this podcast, uh, there are efforts here in the United States, including by my friend Catherine Tucker up in Washington, to get approval for right to try here in the U.S. for psilocybin. Um, If you haven't seen the episodes of the podcast yet, in a nutshell, it basically goes like this. There are federal and correlative state statutes in, I think, 41 of the 50 states that provide a concept called right to try, a medical Hail Mary. Effectively, if you are on, um, uh, well, your deathbed because you have a diagnosis of a terminal illness or condition, which Western medicine has really nothing to offer you, you've exhausted all the reasonable available treatments and remedies and nothing's really working for you, in that circumstance, you may have opportunity to apply for and receive approval to use drugs that are still in an experimental phase, but that haven't yet received full FDA approval. Now, in order to participate, there are several terms and conditions attached, but again, the big things are terminal illness, you don't have anything else that's really working for you, and the thing you want to try has to, at a minimum, gotten past phase one study and has to be still under study for purpose of trying to reach full approval, but hasn't yet. Um, In the instance of the case up in Washington, it involves some cancer patients, they're physicians, and these are terminally ill, diagnosed cancer patients. They're not going to survive their condition, and they are wanting to use psilocybin to ease the anxiety of that situation. You can imagine how you'd feel if you had a diagnosis of impending death and what that might do to your psyche in your final days. Well, these folks are hoping to be able to use iterations of these psilocybin compounds that are currently under study but not yet approved in hopes of relieving that anxiety and therefore getting better presence and quality of life for their remaining days. But federal law currently stands in the way of that, not really, just the DEA to be quite candid, and resultingly there are still an effort to litigate the matter with the DEA to an ultimate conclusion aimed at forcing the DEA to approve these substances under right to try. And indeed, this has gotten so much attention that it has even drawn the uh, eyes of the U.S. Senate, including, amongst others, Senator Cory Booker and, weirdly enough, Senator Rand Paul. Two people you never think would come together on an issue like this, or really any issue, uh, and they did come together. Which just goes to show, this is not a political issue at all. It's a pure human issue, and it's one of respect and care for the dignity of the individual, especially at end of life. And it's a request that we treat all people the way we would want to be treated at our end of life. And yeah, if it means that you want need a Hail Mary, well, you should have it. So... Anyway, keep watching. More more of this to come very soon. All right. Cannabis Business Times also reports that the FDA had sent warning letters out to multiple companies for selling unapproved animal drugs that contained CBD, which also follows on the FDA taking similar stance in opposition to uh, animal manufacture animal product manufacturers that is you don't manufacture animals well, i suppose you could uh but animal product manufacturers uh have been also warned uh, to refrain from producing or selling unapproved delta 
8, which is a compound derived from hemp and chemically modified into a active iteration. Um, story behind it is basically this, if you don't know. Uh, Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, Delta-9, is regarded as the active compound in cannabis. And over the years since the Controlled Substances Act was put into place, it was always Delta-9 that was assumed to be the active compound in cannabis. Well, turns out, with the explosion of the cannabis industry and all the study that's taking place on this plant and the fractionation of chemicals within it and the study of those chemicals, etc., turns out Delta-9 is not the only chemical that's active. In point of fact, there's another iteration of that chemical, Delta-8, which is just slightly chemically different. And it turns out that the cannabis industry, which kind of has a lock on, well, medical marijuana and recreational marijuana, is a little torqued right now because it turns out that you can extract and uh, sell Delta-8, which you can get from USDA hemp, which by definition is not medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. Under the 2018 Farm Bill, the U.S. Drug, excuse me, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, became authorized to permit hemp cultivation, but the hemp is required to have a THC content below 0.03%. So if you've got hemp that has a significant amount of THC, you have what's called hot hemp and you're no longer legal. What you are instead is a grower of illegal cannabis and typically you have to destroy that crop. But in order to help uh, staunch and stem the financial risks that come with being a hemp grower, well, hemp growers look for a variety of different ways to use and improve and sell and transfer their products. And this includes extraction of chemicals from within it. And Delta-8 is one of those chemicals, and it is resultingly becoming very popular right now because it doesn't require all the state licensing and approval that dispensaries require. And as a result, more of this Delta-8 is getting out onto the shelves and in the marketplace and into products. And the FDA is upset because their position is these are unapproved and these products shouldn't be sold. But this is going to continue to wrestle and wrangle in the courts and in the administrative hallways for a while because there have already been lawsuits filed aimed at trying to establish Delta-8's status as legal or illegal. And the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled in the Central District of California that Delta-8 is legal under the 2018 Farm Bill. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration nonetheless did issue multiple letters to multiple pet food manufacturers warning against the inclusion of Delta-8 in pet foods on premise that they, the inclusion of Delta-8 was being touted for health benefits. These might seem like contradictory concepts that one court is saying that Delta-8 is acceptable, but the FDA is taking the position that it's not. It's really in, in the, the world of having Delta-8 being described as having some sort of medical benefit, which the FDA is cautioning against and warning manufacturers not to make any health claims regarding Delta-8. Now here's an interesting news story that I picked up off of Sky News, which is out of the United Kingdom, and oh, specifically England. And what Sky News is indicating is that in 2021, a study revealed that there were 52 
new psychoactive substances discovered in Europe. Uh, what they're saying here is, you know, not in the lab, but on the streets. 52 new, as of yet, unknown psychoactive substances on the streets of Europe. And you can assume probably around the world. Now, these are, as you can imagine, synthetic drugs. These aren't, you know, like new plants that people just stumbled upon after all these years. Uh, and the article goes on to point out that these are synthetic variants of opioids and cannabinoids, amongst others, and that something new or novel was popping up at, on the average of about one a week. And throughout the course of the prior year, the European-related police or drug enforcement agencies had discovered and dismantled over 350 clandestine drug production facilities. Uh, interestingly, with most being found in Belgium and the Netherlands. I have no idea why that would be, but I'd be curious to know. I don't know what's up with Belgium and the Netherlands. Well, let's see. And right here in my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, our New Times has reported on a federal lawsuit that was just filed in June. And I'm going to be doing a show on just this in the next few weeks. The case is brought on the Church of the Eagle and the Condor against the DEA and U.S. Customs seeking to stop what has been an ongoing problem of the DEA and U.S. Customs interdicting and interrupting and preventing the importation of ayahuasca as sacrament for this religious organization. This has been an ongoing problem, uh, not just by the Church of the Eagle and the Condor. There are multiple religious organizations in the U.S. having exactly this problem at this moment, and this is not the only lawsuit aimed at trying to stop the DEA or modify the DEA's behaviors at a minimum to make this less ornery for these religious groups. I'm going to be doing an entire episode of the podcast in a few weeks, and I'm bringing on uh, Charles Carrion and Greg Lake, and we're going to just sort of roundtable these lawsuits and talk about them at some depth. So tune in, uh, coming soon. And here's a story that snuck in under the radar in late July. Apparently, in the Central District of California, the W.M. Wrigley Jr. Company, the manufacturers of Wrigley Chewing Gum, won a trademark violation lawsuit against some cannabis manufacturers. Uh, specifically, these were manufacturers who were making edible cannabis-infused candies that were using spoof trademark marketing names of Skittles and Starburst. Now, Skittles and Starburst are both trademarks owned by the Wrigley Company, and the Wrigley Company complained, and did so successfully, that these cannabis manufacturers were using iterations of the Skittles and Starburst names on their products, which would, of course, naturally be a direct infringement. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with trademark infringement, if you own federal registrations over your trademarks and somebody infringes you, not only does it come with mandatory, very big federal fines and penalties, but depending on how egregious the infringement is, it can literally be criminal. So these are really big deals. So while, yeah, sure, it's fun to use existing marketing names out there in funny and creative ways to try to bank in on the cachet that those existing marks have and, and enjoy in the marketplace, 
That's exactly the problem of infringement. You're not supposed to be taking other people's goodwill and intellectual property and exploiting it for your personal benefit. And if you do, you're going to get sued, and those lawsuits are hellaciously expensive. Now, this one comes from CBS News and the NFL, reporting on Packers' Aaron Rodgers saying that psychedelics led him back to MVP status. Uh, Apparently, Aaron Rodgers has been using psychedelics to help his mental focus, which in turn has also helped his physical abilities, and he's crediting psychedelics with enabling him to improve his career and extend it. I've been saying for quite a while that psychedelics have the ability to be performance-enhancing, both physically and mentally, and here's somebody from one of the most rigorous sports on the planet confirming this. Big news. More to follow. And my wife is in the doorway flashing her tits. Thanks, sweetie. Want to do it on camera? Uh, I will join you. Yeah, let me. Uh, yeah, to reheat them, I wrap them in a wet paper towel. I put them on defrost cycle at one pound. Oh, okay. I'll join you in a moment then. All right, now here's another one right here out of my hometown of Phoenix, Arizona, and this just happened about a week ago, August 10th. Uh, The Maricopa County Sheriff's Office Drug Suppression Task Force, the McDist, which is part of their RICO team, I guess, uh, raided a bogus dispensary right here in downtown Phoenix. If you don't know this, Arizona does have a very comprehensive licensing structure for our dispensaries, and if you want to operate or own a medical marijuana or recreational marijuana facility, there's a whole lot you need to do, and this includes having a license. And by the way, there aren't any more right now, so you can't get them. So resultingly, uh, whoever these people were, they decided they were just going to open up a bogus dispensary, and they operated for several months, out in the open, no less, which I'm baffled by how nobody noticed this immediately is crazy. But yeah, they had a full-blown storefront, and apparently, besides selling cannabis, they were also selling psilocybin mushrooms, according to this article. Uh, Included that they were in display cases, and people could just walk in and see them and buy them, and well, the police did as well, and you can imagine how the rest of that went. Uh, So, are there still black market undercurrents, even in a world of legal cannabis? You betcha. 
Why? Because even legal cannabis is still very expensive and outside the reach of normal people. And depending on the quality you're after and where you're shopping, that can vary as well. So the black market is very much alive and well and, and bold and in the open as can be, as, as you can tell from this story. Uh, by the way, those people, if they're convicted, are going to be looking at some serious, serious felony charges and serious jail time. So can't recommend anybody repeat their mistakes. Um, but this does belie a bigger problem, and that is that pricing and availability are both still challenges, and resultingly they help to continue to fuel a black market. So improvements continue to be needed. Take heed. All right. Now, there is a petition to the United States Supreme Court that has been filed, and it's coming out of Florida and regards a health coach who has been disciplined by the state of Florida for giving health advice while not being a licensed dietitian or nutrition in the state of Florida. And she is defending her position on premise of First Amendment rights. Now, this may not be a straight-up correlative, and also the U.S. Supreme Court may decline certiorari, and this case may never get heard at that level. But for psychedelic circles, this is going to be a very interesting case about the ability to offer advisement to patients, customers, interested parties, whatever the label or circumstance is where you're dealing with a third party, um, but in a universe where psychedelics may be trapped in the Western industrial medical side of things, and perhaps there are practitioners who aren't full-blown doctors, physicians, psychologists, uh, or the equivalent, but still wanting to ply their trade of offering some kind of psychedelic-assisted therapy or service. If you don't have full-blown licensure, as this person in Florida seems to not have full-blown licensure over diet and nutrition, you could face a similar problem where a regulatory board in your state who thinks that you are usurping their regulations or authority by applying your trade without having their credential or licensure, this could be something that I could readily see will play out in the very near future. So the, the case is um, in the name of Heather Kokesh del Castillo, uh, out of Northwest Florida, and it's against the state of Florida. Uh, keep your eyes open, see if this one actually gets traction at the Supreme Court, because again, there could be some uh, value in how this case is decided. And depending on how it's decided, it may make the difference between whether you can offer some kind of therapeutic service in the psychedelic world without necessarily having the correlative credential.
Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm-hmm. you.